Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 8. We're going to continue our study in the Psalms. So if you would, uh, please uh, stand as we give attention to God's Word. Uh, we're going to read Psalm chapter 8, and this is God's Word for God's people. David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemies and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, your work of your finger, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you came for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we can say with passion, the same words that David penned thousands of years ago. Lord, You are our Lord. You are majestic. And we are here to worship and lift up Your name. And so, Lord, where there is hurt, please heal us. What we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. Informed by Your Word and empowered by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Psalm 8. I want to start off the question. Uh, who is the most famous person that you know? Who is the most famous person that you know? Or maybe even this. Who is, who is the most famous person in the world that you had an interaction with? Who is the most famous person you've had an interaction with? I, I decided to tap in to see who uh, kind of the most famous people who are Googled and uh, in, the, in 2021, I'm going to give you kind of the top five or six. And I wanted this to be like an encouragement. It's like, man, maybe you might, maybe you might have an interaction with one of these people, or maybe you might know one of these people. I don't know. But the uh, kind of tie for five or six is Kanye West and Taylor Swift, right? Number four, this is mind-boggling to me. This is just absolutely mind-boggling to me. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I'm like, Amber Heard? Yeah, who's her, right? Who's her? Who's heard of her? Amber Heard. Number three, Kim Kardashian. Yeah, sure. Um, and number two, Hillary Clinton, 2021. She's still relevant, I guess. Um, and then number one, Donald Trump. And like I said, I wanted this to be like encouraging to you, but I was like, oh, Lord, man. If these are the, these are the most famous people that people are Googling right now and want information on, kind of depressing, isn't it? So I said, okay, who's the most famous person ever to walk planet Earth? In all the surveys that I read, that I saw, looked up, there was like 10 of them, the most famous person in all the world is Jesus Christ. Amen? There was a lot of twos and a lot of threes and a lot of fours that kind of fluctuated, but Jesus Christ, and that, that should bring us back to like praise and joy and worship, that Jesus is the most famous person in all the world. And here's the thing, you know him. You know him. You just don't know of him. Many of you know him personally. And what's even more amazing is that he knows you. He knows you. He knows me by our names. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. 
And that thought alone is astonishing, but it's also can be an alarming thought as well, can it not? And Psalm 8 is going to give us insight into this wonderful reality that the Lord, the majestic one, knows you intimately, knows me intimately. As you guys know, we've been going through the summer of the Psalms, and we start in, in Psalm 1, and we've gone through Psalm 7, and most of these Psalms, outside of Psalm 1, from 2 uh, to 6, have been kind of heavy, have they not? They've been known as songs of lament, and, you, and there's a lot of talk about you know, judgment and wrath and injustice, but the gospel still reigns, and they've been some heavy sermons, and the, and the, the young guys have done pretty good. Well, today in Psalm 8, we kind of take a turn. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of celebration, and that's why I got to assign it to myself, right? Because that's one of the good things about making the preaching schedule. Give the the little, you know, the younger guys a little challenge with those lament passages and give me the the easy one, so to speak. So today is going to be a good one. Psalm 8, it's a song of praise. It's a song of celebration from David. C.S. Lewis uh, said this about this psalm. It's, It's a short, exquisite lyric. One said this, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done, and relating us in our world to him. All the majesty, all the masterly economic of the words and the in the spirit of mingle joy and awe. This is an exquisite lyric, one of praise and one of worship. It is a psalm about us. It's a psalm about you and me, and it's a psalm about the the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the majestic God that we serve. And if if you and I can understand and grasp the the meaning of Psalm 8 and and use it as a a place that we we live our lives, our our place and purpose uh, from this psalm, our lives will, the majority of our lives will be filled with gladness and joy. Again, quickly, a little background on the psalm. It's a psalm of David. Notice it says, uh, to the choir master, uh, written to the Giddith. Uh, what is the, the Giddith? Well, this is why you guys pay me the big bucks, to tell you what the Giddith is. The Giddith is, no idea what the Giddith is. And many scholars have no idea what the Giddith is. It's something that is, is ancient. It has to do with probably some way this, is, this psalm is arranged, or it might have something to do with the instrument that is used to playeth. So we're not sure about the, the context or the time, but we know it's written by King David. He probably wrote this psalm as he was king. And either he's uh, standing on the roof as it's night. He probably wrote this psalm in the evening time because he's looking at the stars and the moon. And he's either you know, just reminiscing about now and all that he's gone through as an older man, or he's, he's, he's remembering when he was just a young shepherd boy. When he'd be out with the sheep in the middle of nowhere and just laying on the ground at night and looking up and seeing the grandeur of the stars. And his king who's majestic. And so that's what we know about this psalm. So let's, so let's dive in. First, we see the Lord's world-famous name in verse 1 and in verse 9. The Lord's world-famous name. Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And look at the end. that It says earth. There's an exclamation point. So there's a, there's a passion. There's an emotion. There's an excitement behind this phrase. You just can't read it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Like David is excited. He's looking at the stars. He sees the moon. He looks at the grandeur of God. And he just he breaks out in praise. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And right off the bat, again, we notice that this is the, 
These stanzas in 1 and 9 are the bookends of this psalm. It's the two rails on which the train of Psalm 8 runs on. And verses 2 and 8 will get us to our destination smoothly if we stay on these two tracks. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. We see there's two words there for Lord. And we, again, many of you understand the differences between these two names. And let me just highlight that. We see the first name is Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We know that as the covenantal name of God. It's Jehovah. It's Yahweh. It's the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush when he gave the, the task of Moses leading the people out of Egypt. And Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am who I am. It's the covenantal name of God. It's the covenantal name of God where, where God ratified His covenant with Israel on the, at the base of Mount Sinai that we taught on a couple months ago in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. This is the Lord. God named Himself Yahweh, the absolute existing one. The one who always was and who always will be. No beginning, no end. He is an absolute being and everyone who has ever existed in this world, especially His people, depend on Him. Depend on His covenant relationship, whether they know it or not. And then you have the second word. You have a capital L, but lowercase o, r, and d. This is not a name. The first one, the Lord, is the name. This is a title. This is Adonai. This means He is the sovereign. He is the, the king. He is the master. And so we see here, David starts out Psalm 8 by identifying who this psalm psalm is about. It's about Jehovah, our King. You could could translate this, O Jehovah, our King, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Lord is who is eternal and totally separate from his creation, yet he has graciously entered into relationship with his people into a covenant relationship as our sovereign king. And what is known about this king is that he is world famous. Now we use this word world famous for athletes, for entertainers, for celebrities, as we just pointed out in Google, but there has only been one name that has been known since the beginning of creation. Since the first people, Adam and Eve, walked this earth, there has only been one name that every generation has heard uttered, and it is the name Yahweh. It is Jehovah. And I want, I want you to let just, just meditate on that for a second. Let that sink in. That Jesus, that God the Father, since the beginning of time, creation, since Adam and Eve, there's only been one name that has been uttered, that has been emulated, that has been praised, that has been worshipped. It's an incredible thought. Not President Trump, not President Obama, not Michael Jordan or Bill Gates or Taylor Swift or Kanye West or even Muhammad or Buddha. Only Jehovah. And not only is his name world famous, but we see the adjective. It's, it's, he is, his name is majestic. It's a royal term. It's, it's, it's magnificent. It, this emphasizes his royal attributes and his character and his credentials and what he has to accomplish. And I'm glad it's the word majesty and not awesome. Right, because we use we use that word awesome. We we overuse that, right? We just had Fourth of July and the fireworks were awesome, the apple pie was awesome, the hangout time was awesome, right? I love that he uses the word majestic because that word has a little bit more weight behind it. It, it, it emphasizes we're not we're not used to that word. If we use it, if we use it at all, it's for something that is spectacular, right? 
And this is what David, this is the word he chooses, that the Lord is majestic. Again, it it deals with his royal attributes of his character and his credentials, what he's accomplished, his victories, his justice, his faithfulness, his righteous rule, his holiness, his love for his people as our sovereign king. His name is majestic, not only here on earth, but well beyond the earth. As it says, you have set your glory or your fame or your name above even the heavens. So the Lord's name is known in the whole creation, creative realm. In the whole of the cosmos, His name is seen, and when it's heard, it is ascribed majesty, glory. It is unrivaled. It is universal. It reaches beyond the boundaries of earth and heaven. This God is world famous. You know Him, but more importantly, He knows you and me. And that takes us to the second point. The second point is the Lord's world-famous strength or praise we see in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemies and the avengers. Here the Lord uses this illustration or this contrast of babies and little children against the enemies. These more powerful adult kind of conference uh, enemies of, of the Lord, of the Jewish people. Many believe in this context that Israel, the babies are uh, a metaphor for Israel. Israel is a small country. It's a weak nation, yet it is moving through the Middle East and, 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 and winning the wars and the battles against these stronger nations. That the Lord is using Israel, this small uh, country, to again show and, and show the world His glory the sheer power of who God is. But if we really want to understand what we are seeing here in verse 2, we have to go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, we have Jesus who quotes Psalm 8-2 and gives us color. He gives us His commentary, His teaching on what Psalm 8-2 is pointing to. Matthew 21 is is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He's riding in on a donkey and thousands upon thousands of people are are laying down their cloaks or laying down the palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise to the Son of God. They're, They're ushering in. They see Jesus coming in as King. Jesus gets to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he's a little, he's a little, frustrated. He's a little bit angry because he sees that his temple that's supposed to be a house of prayer has become a den of thieves. And he sees people making money off of the the less fortunate. And so he cleanses the temple. Not only does he cleanse the temple, but then people start to come him with physical ailments and he's healing them of sickness and disease. And as all this is happening, as these, there's little children there, and as the little children see Jesus cleanse the temple and hear, heal the lepers and the sicknesses and disease, all of a sudden the little children start to, to cry out and to say in verse 15, Hosanna, which means salvation to the son of David. The religious leaders who are around them get angry. And not only do they get angry, it says that they were indignant to what Jesus was doing, but more important, what the little children were saying. And he said, they said to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus is like, yeah, man, I'm not deaf. You know, he says, yes. And then Jesus gives him a little dig. Have you not read 
You're supposed to be the educated. You're supposed to be religious leaders. Have you not read? And he quotes Psalm 8-2 in Matthew 21, where he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared, he doesn't say strength, but he says, praise, praise. So Psalm 8-2 says, it shows God's strength, and, 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 and Matthew and Jesus colors in. What, how, does, how, does, how does that show up? How does God's strength show up? It shows up in praise and worship from the mouths of those who are insignificant, uneducated, and weak. And it confounds those who are educated, who are older, stronger, and more wise. Jesus uses the infants, the babies, the little children to confound the wise. Again, Jesus quotes the Septuagint here. And again, translates that word strength as praise. So, so what, is, what is Matthew saying? What are these little children saying? What they are saying is that, what they are telling the world is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God's majesty is seen as these children are led to be praised by the Spirit of God to praise Jesus. And in turn, shuts up God's enemies, the Pharisees, the scribes. They are silent at what is taking place. Again, I've already gave you the detail of the tape. The, the children are small. They're weak. They're uneducated. They're needy. And yet they silence the, the grown men, the educated, the, the, the ones that are called to lead and guide and direct in worship. And he still does that today. He still uses those who are insignificant to confound the wise with the, the words of praise in the gospel and pointing people to Jesus. But I want to take this application in a little different context, in a little different way, and I want to bring it home to you and to me. And my question is, have you ever been humbled by the faith of a child? Have you ever been humbled by the faith of a child? I can remember probably about 15 years ago, it was late May, we were here, and, and me and Nate were hanging outside, and it was a sunny day, late May, sunny day, and I said, okay, Nate, we got, we got to put the sleds away, you know, it's probably not going to, it's not going to snow anymore, got to put the sleds away, and Nate's like, no, Dad, we're not, it's going to snow, I'm like, bro, I'm like, the sun, I'm like, it's, it's late May, I, I love your heart, but, you know, sledding season's over. But he said, he said I, I, you know, Nate's like five or six. He goes, I, I'm going to pray, Dad. I'm going to pray that, that God's going to let it snow again. And in my mind, you know, I didn't want to crush his little spirit. I was like, okay, buddy, you go ahead and do that, right? Let me know how that works out for you. The next day, wake up, it snowed. <laughs> and I said to Nate, I said, Nate, it's snowing outside. He says, I know, Dad, I prayed for it. And I said, I know you did, son. And I, and I wanted to give you a little teaching lesson on, on, on how to pray and then look to the Lord for faith and ask him in that. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I left you in that lesson, right? I'm glad I led you in that way. No, I was silenced. I was doubting, doubting his little prayers. And here I am. I'm the, I'm the wise one. I'm the pastor. I know the Bible, right? And here's this child humbling me teaching me about faith, teaching me about worship, teaching me not to trust the weather patterns that you see on channel four, channel nine, the meteorologists that say it's going to snow or not snow, not trusting in them, but trusting in the majestic one who controls those patterns. Have you ever been humbled by the faith of a child? 
You see, that's why we have children in the worship gathering, in the Sunday mornings. Typically, you know, when we get back to normal, it's third graders and up are in this gathering. And there's a couple reasons why. One, we want, we want families to worship together. Too often when you go outside, our culture says, let's put the little kids here, the, the middle schoolers here, the high schoolers here, and the adults here, and we separate one another. We want to we bring families together so the children can see mom and dad worshiping. So the children can see mom and dad singing praises to the Lord, to taking notes in their Bibles. So that's one. But the other reason why is children can understand what's going on. They go to school, they sit, they listen to their teacher, third grade and up. They're, they're catching some of the stuff that we're saying here from the pulpit. And let's be honest, not everyone catches everything. You don't, I don't. But there's certain things that the Lord places on, their, on your hearts, just like the Lord places little things on their hearts. And let me tell you, if you're a young family with young kids in now, we, we, we've done this. Take advantage of this time on the drive home and ask your children who sit in this or who are in children's church right now, hey, what'd you learn? What'd you learn about Jesus? What'd you learn about the Bible? And be amazed that sometimes they're going to leave, they're, they're going to leave you speechless. And we still do that with our kids now. It's like after this, we usually go out and have some time together and say, hey, what did you learn? What did the Lord teach you? What did he show you? And, and the Lord still uses them to, to teach me. Even though I'm up here teaching, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good. Should have remembered that. Have you ever been humbled by a child? Well, the Lord uses the little children to show his strength, to show us how to praise him. And then third, finally, the, we'll spend the most of our time here, the Lord's world-famous work and decree. The Lord's world-famous work and decree, verses 3 through 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? To me, when I read this, I think of David as remembering his time back as a shepherd when he is out in the field and he's gazing up and he sees the brilliance of the Milky Way and he's just overcome by the immensity of it. He's overwhelmed by the vastness of the Milky Way, laying out there and just seeing the, the millions and actually the billions of stars. Now, he didn't have Google to say, hey, give me the stats of space or what, is it, you know, what are some great uh, facts about space. He didn't have the Hubble telescope to look through so he can count like there's 200 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. Or that the Milky Way is just a small galaxy and there's actually a, a, like a hundred, some people think a hundred to two hundred billion more galaxies. So when you step back and think about that, like there's been, there's more galaxies than there's ever been people that walked planet Earth. He doesn't have all that information. He just looks up and he sees God's creation. It's an incredible and it overwhelms him. And let me just give you a couple of little stats since we do live in the era of Google and we have the Hubble telescopes and we have some facts about space. Let me give you some stats just quickly about uh, the, the stars. What, what, what is the closest star to earth? Who knows the closest star to earth is? The sun. The sun. It's 93 million miles away, but it's the closest one. Then the next closest star is called Proxima Centauri. It's 4.2 light years away from the sun, from the earth. A light year is, is basically how light travels within one year, uh, 365 days. One light year equals 600, uh, 6 trillion miles. One light year equals 6 trillion miles. So the second closest star to earth is 4.2 light years away from us. 
And then the third one is 4.3 light years away from us, Alpha, Centauri, A, and B. Kind of the popular analogy that sets the sun uh, as the size of a grapefruit. Somehow we can kind of maybe comprehend the vastness of this is that the sun is the size of a grapefruit. You put it in California, and if you want, uh, again, the grapefruit-sized sun to uh, the grapefruit-sized Alpha Centauri system, you'd have to travel about 2,500 miles. That's basically the distance from coast to coast. That's how vast the Milky Way is and the three closest stars to us, and there's 200 to 400 billion in the Milky Way in our small little galaxy, and there's 100 to 200 billion other galaxies out there that the Lord has created. It's incredible, right? At one point, you're like, holy cow, that's amazing. I can't even wrap my mind around that. And at the second time, we've all asked the same question that David is. What is human? What is humanity that you are mindful of us? We are so small. We are so insignificant in this universe, in the cosmos in which God has created. And yet God does care. And what David says is it's like he takes the stars and he places them, God does, with his fingers. He says, I'm going to put the sun here. I'm going to put Mercury here. I'm going to put, what's the next one? Come on. Venus, yeah, good, good. Venus here, I'm going to put the earth here. And around the earth, I'm going to put this little thing called the moon. And the little thing, the moon, this little insignificant, you know, moon is going to dictate the patterns of our ocean and our tides. Now, David doesn't have all this information. He's just laying out there in the field looking up and he sees this creation. And he's like overwhelmed by God's power, by his majesty. And yet we have all this information and we ask the same question as David does in Psalm 8.5 or the answer of, 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 that we have in 8.4 is the question. 8.5 is the answer. The question is, what is humanity that you are mindful of us, that you care for them? And the, and the answer in verse 5 is again, unbelievable, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now he's the Lord mindful of us but his love, his care for us even extends out even further where he looks at us and he bestows upon us glory and honor, fame and respect. These are the only two words that are used for God in the Psalms and really throughout the Bible. And yet God the Father bestows them on humanity, on men, on women, on children. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an astonishing statement. The one who spoke and created this cosmos looks at you and me, insignificant, like specks of dust in this world, and he ascribes to us glory and honor. Humanity is crowned by the Lord and his royal, as his royal representatives here on earth, and he considers us royalty in his court as our sovereign king. It's an incredible, an incredible thought. Let that sink in this morning. If you're battling with, man, does the Lord love me? Does he even care? He looks at you and he scribes glory and honor to you. He sees you as a prince or princess in his royal court. Nothing can be greater than that. Again, he, he, this, 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 this psalm is, is, has a lot of uh, terms that deal with royalty, and it's, it's tough for us to grasp. Like, <clears throat> we hear royalty, and we're like, yeah, we understand. It's something to do with, you know, the 
you know, monarchies. And that's tough for us to grasp because we never lived under a monarchy here. But all, basically all the other uh, countries in the world have lived under some kind of a monarchy. And again, I love it here because it helps us sit and, and think about that and meditate on what does that mean? This, this royalty status. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Just like it's a big deal when we see like Prince, uh, what is his name, Henry? Like when he goes to Target over in England, it's like world news, like everything stops and cameras are following him, right? It's a big deal to be royalty in England. It's a big deal to be in the royal court of the sovereign king. That's how he sees you. In all the vastness of creation, the Lord gives us and exalts humanity as the crown jewel of his creation. Not the sun, not the Milky Way, not the Grand Canyon, not the Rocky Mountains, but us, you and me. Little particles, little dust particles in the grand scheme of things. He sees us as valuable. He ascribes to us ones who display the image of God. And this is true of all human beings. This is true of all human beings. Every person who has existed has dignity, has worth. Therefore, when we're in conversations, in particular where we see ourselves in our time, in our culture, that we should show respect and compassion to everyone regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religious belief, regardless of their political stance. We should ascribe honor and dignity to them as people. Now, not their beliefs and what they stand for, not that. We can challenge that. But as created in the image of God, we ascribe honor and dignity. We respect them. We saw this when we talked on John 4, when Jesus ascribed honor and dignity to the woman at the well, right? We saw this in Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan, where Jesus ascribed the Good Samaritan using this parable with honor and dignity. Again, this has to do with just standing, not salvation. This is a general statement about the dignity of humanity. And in God's economy, He has ground humanity with a special place on earth. It says here in Psalm 8, a little lower than the angels. I love how James Boyce says it. This is how James Boyce says it. He says, Psalm 8 places man midway between the angels which are above him and the beasts which are below him. Man is a spirit body being. Angels have spirits, but no body. Animals have bodies, but no spirit. Sorry. Man, however, has both a spirit and a body and so comes between. He is midway on the scale of intelligence of those that have been created. We have a special place, a little bit lower than the angels. Now, not only has God crowned humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, but he doesn't just say, hey, you're a prince and you're a princess of the king, but he gives us a decree. He gives us a job. He gives us a role. It's, a, it's, it's found in the creation mandate. It's found in, in verse 6 of Psalm 8. And this echoes Genesis 1, 26 and forward. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds in the heavens, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the path of the sea. That's talking about the currents of the sea. 
He has given you and me a creation mandate. Man, woman, and child to rule, to reign. Another royal term he gives us would be um, we are viceroys. A viceroy is one who exercises authority on behalf of the sovereign king. God the Father is the sovereign king over the world, over the cosmos. He has put us on earth to rule and to reign and have dominion over this cosmos. To rule over the animal kingdom to rule over the ocean, to rule, and then to be fruitful and multiply and create more image bearers as worshipers. Again, this takes us back to the original mandate in Genesis 1.1, but then it's highlighted in Matthew in the two commandments that we are to love God, love people, and go and make disciples. So God gives us glory and honor in our insignificance, but then he gives us a significant role to rule and to reign as his viceroys over this earth. And the question is, well, how how are we doing? How are we doing ruling and reigning and having dominion over this earth? In a lot of ways, we're doing doing pretty good. We're actually doing pretty well when you sit and think about it. Again, we start out just walking. Then we learn how to ride animals like horses. And And then we created cars. We created trucks. created planes and helicopters and space shuttles. That's pretty amazing. We've created medicines to, to take care of and cure diseases. We've replaced knees. We've replaced hips. We've even replaced hearts. Other major organs, that's, that's pretty good. It's pretty amazing. Computers, phones. Just take a look at what's taking place in the last several decades. We've gone from analog to digital. We've gone to vinyl to streaming. We've gone to, again, walking on earth to walking on the moon. We've created cultures and civilizations and arts and entertainment and all the ologies out there. We, and the time that we live in right now is an amazing time. It's an amazing time. We've, we've done a lot of incredible things leading, guiding, and directing and ruling over this earth. But that's not the whole story, and we know that. We know there's a, there's a, there's a downside that our rule and reign hasn't been the greatest. There seems to be a problem with our ruling capabilities, right? Where we've helped a lot of people, we've also harmed people. We can hear the wars and the injustices. We're the most educated people that have ever existed and have the most information to us that have ever existed. We can make some of the dumbest and stupidest decisions on earth, right? And we see this going on all over right now in our culture. In fact, I just, I, I mean, it just leaves you speechless. This past week, I was reading about a biological man who identifies as a woman trying to breastfeed a baby and then being like, it's not working. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not working because that's not how God has created this world. And yet people think that men could breastfeed babies. It's crazy. Or you look at our culture and people think that, hey, socialism, communism, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And they forget about the wake of injustice and the, and the deaths, the millions upon millions that have died in its wake. I mean, we look at our world and we got to ask ourselves and pause and, and say like, hey, let's evaluate our thim- thumbprint as viceroys, as rulers. Isaiah 5 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We, we see this in our own world. We see the good and we also see the bad. I mean, think about it. I mean, we're, 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 we're people of almost 8 billion people on this earth and we get along for the most part, but where we don't, it can be real ugly. 
And again, as we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we, we long for heaven. We long for the, the garden and Eve. We long for sin to be dealt with. We know that in Genesis 1, everything was perfect, and men and women were, were ruling and reigning over this world, and everything was going well until uh, man sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, and then all of a sudden we've been tainted. And we've seen this cycle over and over again. We seem to have some success, and then we have some failure. Success and failure, success and failure. And that would be a sad story if that was the end, but of course it's not. And here, again, Jesus gives us a commentary, or the, the, the writer of Hebrews gives us a commentary on Psalm, what Psalm 8 is pointing us to. And we're going to go over this in a, in a couple months in Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 5, speaking about Jesus, this is what it says. Verse uh, 6 says, it has been said, and has been testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything under subjection to his feet. He's, de- he's talking directly about who Jesus is, ascribing Psalm 8 to this person, Jesus. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. That's the struggle right now. We know the world has been conquered. Sin has been conquered. It's already not yet what we talked about. We know that the, there's, a, there's a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to deal uh, with the presence of sin on earth right now. But not yet. There's still going to be the struggle between good and evil. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who's made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, not because of the suffering of, not because of, the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, the first Adam that came, he compromised, he sinned. He rebelled against the king. He was an unfaithful viceroy. And that separated us. His sin separated us from the king. And that's why Jesus, the second Adam, had to come to live perfectly, to be the perfect viceroy, the perfect representative, the perfect ruler over this world. He, he tasted our suffering. He, he tasted our sin. He died for everyone. And he did that so he can bring sons and daughters back to right relationship with him, back to glory. Jesus reversed the compromise mandate that Adam and Eve did when they sinned so that it could be fulfilled. And this is what Psalm 8 is pointing us to. It's pointing us to, to, to Hebrews chapter 2. It's pointing us to Jesus, that one who is faithful would again be the perfect viceroy. He would live the perfect life and the perfect ruler in our place. He would die on the cross for our sin. He would be raised again, and then he would give us, again, some more color on the mandate to love God, to love givers, and to make disciples of all nations. And this is why, this is why we look to Jesus and we call him the the majestic one. He is our majestic king. This is why he is the most world famous person to ever exist on planet earth because he took care of humanity's greatest need. He took care of your greatest need and my greatest need and that is of sin. He lived the perfect life in our place. He died on the cross for our sin and he rose again. And one day, sooner or later, he will come back to reclaim and we will live in glory with Him. He will once and for all put the, again the end of sin, death, throw it into hell and rule and reign with His prince and princesses forevermore. And that leads us back to verse 9. Kind of sums it up. 
And I want you to point out, I want to point out something, that little possessive word that David uses. He says, O Lord, what? Our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord. It's the same word that that Jesus used when he prayed to the Father. Our Father who art in heaven. And we can personalize it even more. He is my Lord. O Lord, my Lord. If you have repented and trusted in Christ, if you repent of your sins and trusted in his life, his death and resurrection, you can say with David, you can say with those that repent and trusted him, he is my Lord. He is my King. I am a child of the King. And that's the question this morning. Have you done that? Is he your Lord? Can you say that without a shadow of the doubt that he is your Lord? If not, again, today is the day to recognize His Lordship, His majesty, His royalty, His power, His strength. Just as the little children saw Him and praised Him as King, as Savior, as Lord, you have been confronted today with that same question. Is He your Lord? And if you have done that, then tonight, then tonight, when it's night, the stars are out, just get out, go outside, And even better yet, you know, sometimes that you need to get a little bit away from the city. Get away and just look up the stars. Just look up the stars and be amazed at its majesty. And the one that created that with his fingers, the one that placed those stars and those planets up there cares for you and has handpicked you to become a child of the king. It's an incredible thought. Let Psalm 8 again, lead you out these doors of worship and praise to the majestic King in whom we serve on what He has done and accomplished for you and me, something that we could not accomplish for ourselves. And as we walk out, and as tonight, as we look at the the stars and the moon, again, just be amazed that the one who wrote that, the one who spoke that into existence and placed that with His fingers cares for you and knows you by name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you for Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, this is a, this is a a Psalm of praise and worship. And Lord, I pray as we walk out these doors, Lord, that we have been confronted with the truth of your word. Lord, that your spirit that indwells us would lead, guide, and direct us to the, to the depths and the meanings of what that would, that would move our hearts in amazement and astonishment that we'd see the mag- majesty of our King and it would cause us to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.